Hello and welcome back to the Great Woman Artist podcast. Last week we interviewed Terra Arc on the Mexican artist and surrealist Remedios Varo. And this week, to close this series of the Great Woman Artist podcast, we speak to Nellie Scott on Sister Mary Carita. But just before we get to it, this episode is generously supported by Christie's Auction House. 2022 has been a year of extraordinary art and objects at Christie's, from the most valuable auction sale of all time, with the collection of Microsoft co-founder Paul G. Allen, to the numerous free and public exhibitions, like the recent Macabre selling exhibition. As the year comes to a close, Christie's invites you to explore new ways of transacting this holiday season. With Christie's private sales, you don't have to wait for the next auction to get the work that you love or for the hammer to come down to sell your collection. It is a bespoke and discreet service where Christie's international team of experts are at your disposal throughout your collecting journey, offering year-round buying and selling opportunities at a pace that suits you. From jewels and watches to paintings, furniture, manuscripts and photographs, there are over 193 works currently available for immediate purchase. Visit Christie's.com to learn more about Christie's private sales service or what's in store for 2023. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from The Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators, or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most of them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I'm so excited to say that my guest on the Great Women Artists podcast is Nellie Scott, director of the Carita Art Centre in Hollywood, California. In her career so far, Nellie has developed over 100 exhibitions democratizing art engagement and education, working with different institutions. Previously, she worked as the gallery manager at Burnham Wood Galleries of East Hampton and New York, as well as the development director for the Art Revolution Foundation, a cause that champions putting art school supplies back into the hands of students. Scott holds her degree in art history and has spent the last decade developing exhibitions and art education initiatives geared towards democratizing art engagement. And it is this that is very fitting for the artist we will be discussing today. Sister Mary Carita Kent, the legendary Los Angeles icon, pop artist, activist, nun and educator and focus of the Carita Art Center in Hollywood, where Nellie serves as director. Because since she has taken on this role, she has passionately been working on raising awareness of inequities surrounding historical monuments in the U.S., beginning with the fight to save Carita's former studio in Hollywood, California, something of no small feat, as it is only 3% of historical monuments associated with women's heritage alone in Los Angeles. Nellie Scott, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Wonderful. Hi, Katie. I'm just so thrilled to be on the podcast. I'm a huge fan. (gasps) Anyone who's been to L.A. knows that 
we spend a lot of time in our vehicles driving to and fro. So it's always such a treat to listen and learn. So um, it's a great honor to be with you today. Oh, Nelly, well, it's such an honor to have you on and to discuss this legendary figure in pop art, but also humanitarian causes and education. I mean, I was lucky enough to meet you in person last year and visit the Carita Art Center in Hollywood, which is this place of hope joy, learning, and activism. And a favorite part of my tour was, of course, you showing me the Carita Mobile, where you take art supplies out to disadvantaged neighborhoods and encourage people to draw and make. But I also loved it because you showed me all these incredible screen prints and posters by Sister Carita, filled with luminous block colors and text that reflected her concerns about poverty, racism, and war, and filled, of course, with messages of peace and social justice. So I wanted to start by asking you, when you are confronted with the work of Sister Carita, how does it make you feel? Well, that's a great question. You know, during COVID, sadly, we didn't have the access to our, our collection that we normally do, which is the heartbeat of the Creator Art Center is the collection and doing tours and inviting visitors in and being in community. And so I can say when we went back into the offices and had her work surrounding us again, it's so uplifting and thought-provoking And we feel so lucky to be her champion and the stewards of her legacy. She was an artist, educator, a social justice advocate, and all of her works really speak to the moment that we're facing now, 50 plus years later from when they were made. Totally. I mean, she mainly worked in silkscreen and was obviously one of the pioneers of this medium in the 1950s and 60s. I mean, during the course of her career, her artwork evolved from using figurative and religious imagery to incorporating advertising images and slogans, popular song lyrics, even biblical verses and literature. When did you first discover her work and what were your immediate reactions? How is she not a household name? I think was my my first reaction because especially during her lifetime in the late 60s when she rose to fame, you know, she was on the cover of Newsweek. She was named Women of the Year in LA Times. Like there are all of these mile markers. I think we can credit a lot of people in championing her over really the last decade or so of bringing her name and her work to the light. Totally, totally. It was so interesting being in LA last year as well, because she's such a sort of icon in LA, yet in London, where I live, not many people have heard of her. So I, you know, it's so important to sort of get the message out. But I'm interested, do you have a favorite work of hers in particular? And if so, which one and why? It changes. There are things that I find that I'm just like, wow, that really speaks to what I needed to hear today, because I think her work, because it is so democratic, working primarily in paper, which is You may not have a piece of marble at home (laughs) to create a sculpture, but most people have access to paper and it's something that's very familiar. You know, it's very easy to find yourself in. But the work that I've come back to time and time again is a work that she made as part of her Heroes and Sheroes series. It is after she had sought dispensation from her vows and was working as a secular artist. It's just such an incredibly prolific time, 1968 and 1969. It cracks open and she's making these very political works in this series. And there's one work in particular called A Passion for the Possible. And it really speaks to that hope is not optimism, it's hard work. And we have to show up every day to make change. And 
boy, did I need that over the last few years as we thought about how we as an organization can show up for artist educators and our community at large. Yeah, I think it's so wonderful. It's this incredible kind of yellow and black poster. And at the top, it says, hope arouses as nothing else can arouse a passion for the possible. And it suddenly has sort of iconic text. And then below are these hands sort of coming up, almost kind of in this crowd or something. And you just see this sort of sense of hope and togetherness in her work, I think. And I think that that really was her primary reason for creating. It's a vehicle for the message. You know, at the end of the day, it's about the message in the work. And how do you get that out as fast as possible? You know, she was a very petite woman. If you see photos of her, she had rickets as a child. So she was physically very small. And especially if you see a video of her pulling the screen, which is such a physical act. Yeah. You know, sit there and pull and pull. And certainly she wasn't alone. She had her students and, and colleagues helping her. But that in and of itself is, you know, kind of an act of resistance and while she herself never marched, she used her art as this tool to get the message out. And not only was she working, you know, in parallel to many movements, but she was working within a system to change a system too, which at that time was the Catholic Church. So, yeah, totally. You know, there's such power in using text in art and printmaking. I mean, in a way, she kind of follows in the line of people like Katakolvitz being this sort of printmaker in the turn of the 20th century, fighting for social justice. But also when we look at the 80s and 90s, people like Barbara Kruger and Jenny Holzer, you know, these artists who use this text sort of out of context. I mean, this fantastic work that you brought up at the top, there's also sort of like a handwritten section. And she talks about this idea of like, if it's not possible, if not probable. If I can be theological for a moment, I think there's a great difference between being optimistic and being hopeful. I am not optimistic, but I am hopeful. But I, I kind of love this. It's kind of like these messages that, you know, despite being made in 1969, obviously a time of such political tumult as well, you know, in 2022, we need that just as much today. And I love this idea of hope through art. Yes. And there's a lot of it to take when you look at her whole life of work, you know, even in her later years, she was very giving, but she also knew her value. And I think there was a balance into being a professional artist and selling her work, but also being very giving with her work. She often did commissions for social causes and organizations she cared very deeply about. She even had donated several works to a few different political and activist leaders, their court cases and for their legal fees in which she would donate her work for them to sell and then the money would help um, fund that. So she definitely found her way of using her art to give back. And I think for her, a lot of people, of course, find joy and love and these threads in all of her pieces. But when she speaks of love, it's about a humanitarian effort, this kind of universal community that we all belong to as humans. And so that's what I find really fascinating, especially towards her later years, as she becomes a little more active against nuclear war. And she gives this beautiful speech in Cambridge, actually, where she speaks about us becoming a community. We have to become a community. And that starts with a neighbor that starts in a street and this kind of very interesting ripple effect in how to create a community and how to create an artistic community. Because at the very end, she asks, if we can do it right, then we are artists. And if we don't do it right, it's the end. And what matters then otherwise than to be artists? 
is actually how it ends. And it's really a beautiful statement because you think about artists working now and how they are the visionaries. The more we can support artists, educators and artists, they're looking at today's problems and solving them. You know, art is problem solving at, at its core. And that makes us very excited to support artists working now through her lens and through her legacy. I think that is such a beautiful way of, you know, saying it. It almost reminds me of Ruth Asawa, this amazing artist who was around in San Francisco in the late uh, late 20th century. And, you know, she talks about this idea of actually art giving people agency and the power that art has, you know, not just to kind of make something beautiful and joyous, but actually fund people's legal fees. I, I love this idea of art being this multifaceted thing that can mean so many different things to so many different people. Right. And I think especially with Corita, and this could be my own personal lens, as a huge fan of social practice art. But I think that very much of her work is rooted in social practice because she's building from the community. And so it's very easy to make Karita kind of a monolith of this time, but she was part of order. She was part of this incredible group of women who were championing her. And it wasn't just the art department that was leading the way. Every part of that college the scientists were at the forefront of their field, uh, the drama department. They even had the Zion sisters who had like a record deal. It wasn't just Corita. And so when you think of where many of her pieces where she's creating in the 60s are coming out of, it's really important for us to kind of acknowledge the we to part of her work, that this was made in community. And certainly when we think of her legacy, the thing that stands out to us is her role as an educator. Like many incredible women artists, they are often teaching artists as well. And so we've all had educators in our life that we can almost feel their hand on our shoulders at moments. And she was that educator for so many of her students who've gone out into the world to become artists themselves or educators. But we think about that often. It's certainly not just Karita who was making incredible work at the Immaculate Heart College at that time. Yeah. Her mentor, Sister Mag, you know, you see these fantastic images of Corita as they did these tours, not only across the U.S., but internationally. They spent um, three months in, in Europe and in Northern Africa, and they're delightful, but they're also experimenting and allowing room for play in their work, too, and play in the way that they were teaching their students. And that gets to Karita's 10 rules, which are something that we sit with often that to create and analyze can be two different processes. They don't have to happen at the same time. So allow yourself enough space to be creative. Yeah, absolutely. But I'd love to go back to the early part of her life as well. I mean, she was born Frances Elizabeth Kent in Fort Dodge, Iowa in November 1918 to a working class Catholic family. I mean, tell us about her childhood. What sort of family was she born into? Oh, absolutely. And I think this helps set the stage for the artist that she would become. One of the, the big questions we often receive, of, you know, why did she become a nun? And her family, I would say, you know, was a working poor family. This was a very difficult time, Great Depression here in the United States. They had lived close to her mother's family who were located in Hollywood. So a rather large family. She would have been very well aware of the Sisters of Immaculate Heart of Mary order as not only was their mother house, you know, within walking distance, but 
many of the women and sisters were educators. You know, at one point they were even one third of the educators in Los Angeles. So she would have been very much aware of them. So she was always an artist. Let's say that even as a child, she was very inclined to create and sister Naomi would foster her creativity after school and teach her what she was learning in college. So Karita took that and and ran with that. And then ultimately after graduating high school and in 1936 joined the order, I think to everyone's surprise, she was a very private person. So she did not talk about this really with her family or friends, but zooming out with everything that we know, especially if she wanted to continue not only her education, but creating just very few options that would have allowed her to to go down the path of this kind of independent spirit. So I think that's one of the many reasons that she may have joined. Yeah, that's so interesting because, I mean, this is 1936. As an 18-year-old woman, there aren't a lot of options, of course, especially if you come from a working-class family. And how amazing that she sort of saw these women as these role models as well. Because am I right in thinking, you know, these nuns at the Immaculate Heart of Mary were actually very progressive? So much so that I think if people out there who are listening are interested in knowing their very unique history, there was a documentary that came out recently called Rebel Hearts that tells their history that this order was not only really progressive, but very unique in its approach to Vatican II. They very much took it to heart. And ultimately, there was some conflict with the LA Archdiocese and Cardinal McIntyre that resulted in the majority of them seeking dispensation from their vows. And do you think that also, because the thing is, in 1941, she finishes her BA at the Immaculate Heart College, and 1944, she was assigned by the college to teach at a primary school in British Columbia in Western Canada. I mean, do you think also education was her calling? Yes, I think that was part of this order in particular, what made them rather unique and in the landscape of many orders, right? Many women religious are just rooted in kind of feminist theology (laughs) by nature, but they required for their educators at the college to have a higher education. So at the time that they sought dispensation from their vows, ultimately as a larger community in 1970, the majority of them had their master's or higher. Now that was very unique because they they required it of them. And I absolutely think Karita was always an educator, even to (laughs) her final days. Totally. I mean, you know, it's just so ingrained in every sort of aspect of her life as well. But I mean, just to sort of rewind slightly, I'm fascinated to know when she actually took to taking up art. Obviously, you said she's always been an artist because between 1947 and 1951, she studied for a master's at the University of Southern California. Am I right to think it was actually here where she began screen printing, making these serographs towards the end of her degree? And how was she to kind of know to kind of go off and get herself this DIY silk screening kit. It's very creative to send away for a do-it-yourself silk screen print. But I think it's a reminder to everybody that you do not need the most incredible space or supplies just to get started. And so she had a kind of a safe place to do that. It was at the end of her time at USC. She had received her degree in art history, specifically in medieval art and Byzantine art, really, which you see quite a bit in her early 50s work. We have some of her very early teenage figurative work in our collection, and she very much knew how 
to create figures. And so there's definitely an artistic choice with her early work that goes back to some of her time as an art historian, looking and looking again at some of these incredible work. And she credits a woman named Maria Martinez to really teaching her how does this really work? And there are delightful stories of her while she's at USC of going into the bathroom and and pulling paper towels and printing on those. And oh my God, I know to be a fly on the wall. (laughs) But then I think, you know, it really takes off from there. You know, within her first year, she wins an award and is notable with the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. And I think what maybe some of the early appeal of it was, is that she could also make money for the order. This was how she was going to use her time and talents to benefit the order. And she could do multiples, right? She could have a sale. She could make 50. She could make up to 200. And also it fit within her ethos, you know, from a very early start, when you look at not only those early pieces, but throughout her whole career, many of them are not numbered. And that's very purposeful. She didn't want one to be more valuable than the next. It it kind of reminds me of the Guerrilla Girls as well. You know, their sort of amazing activist spirit because they didn't number their works either. Well, they don't today. And so everyone can kind of feel like they own an artwork as well, which is an amazing thing in itself. Yes. You know, accessibility was very key for her. Again, them being works on paper, they're approachable in a different way. And she didn't see any hierarchy between advertising and what she was seeing with her students. She would take her students all over Los Angeles. I think that's the other part of her inspiration when you look at those early 50s and 60s pieces. She was well aware of what was going on in the art world. And would she look to abstract expressionism or anything because it was happening at that time? Absolutely. And I think sometimes it's very easy to think of her as a nun and in a silo and very pious and not taking in the world. But Like I mentioned, she would take her students out to galleries and museums, but she was doing the lecture tour with Sister Max. She was all across the country, like any artist now, seeing the work of the time, meeting and speaking and inspired by. We have a great photo in our collection of her in Rothko's studio. What? That's amazing. Yeah. So it all seeps in and it's really fascinating to look at her prints now from our point of view and looking at the archives and trying to start doing some of that super sleuthing of not only inspiration, but where she's pulling some of the language from some of its biblical, some of its pop lyrics, some of its, you know, the Beatles and this idea of like, there is no hierarchy also within the written word as she was incorporating that into her work more and more in the sixties. Yeah, totally. So in the sort of early 50s, I mean, you mentioned she won this prize for this amazing work called Lord is With Thee, which is almost slightly figurative, slightly abstract expressionist. But then, I mean, in the sort of later 50s, she kind of switches to this new direction. And suddenly she starts to incorporate text and symbolism in her work as well. I mean, I love this idea that she's totally taking from the world around her. This idea that it's like the birth of consumerist culture. It's like the birth of Americanization in the mid 50s. And she's using like airplanes as a symbol for guardian angels or Wonder Bread as the Eucharist. I mean, what did she begin to incorporate and how did she engage with consumer culture around her? You see that switch, that clear switch that happens in 1962 where she starts with Wonder Bread. I think that's our real mile marker into what we might consider pop art. 
And so there's a Venn diagram of things to consider. So the first being that she was receiving some negative feedback from the archdiocese at the time around her figurative work of the Holy Family, you know, considered it blasphemous, actually. And then, you know, like many West Coast pop artists of this time period, she also saw the Duchamp retrospective. You know, I think some of these early things are sitting with her. And then the market basket, a grocery store, opens up directly across from the college and next to ultimately what was her working studio. And L.A. was booming. You know, billboards everywhere, development, buildings going up, advertisements everywhere. And the language became the subject matter. She loved wordplay too. So there's always a double meaning when you read some of the works that she's choosing. And she's always very good, I have to say, about attributing the author of the words. And sometimes that's a student of hers. Sometimes that's a colleague. Paul McCartney. (laughs) It makes it a little bit easier on us to figure out (laughs) on this side of things. And then the other factor in all of this is Vatican II, which was monumental within the Catholic Church in thinking of who and how we're serving. And again, this order really took it to heart. If you're not familiar with Vatican II, some of the outcomes of that were changing the Mass to the native tongue from Latin to something that people might be able to understand. And so thinking of advertising and mass marketing as also, could there be spirituality found in here? What if we remove some of these barriers or layers through the art? Yeah. And again, it's that if you're not religious, you're going to see so much in this work. But if you are religious, you may see the Eucharist. You may see the 12 apostles. You may see all of the symbolism and nods to kind of spirituality. And so that's why I think she does so well, is there's something for everybody in her pieces. Totally. So this is from 1962 to 1965. The Second Vatican Council took place, which basically aimed to modernize the church. And Carita, like many other clergy members, was spurred to endeavor into social and political activism. And I kind of love this idea of Vatican II or the Second Vatican Council, because it's a bit like the Renaissance, right? Or the Baroque, the Reformation, what's happening in the sort of cusp of the 17th century, in the sense that, okay, well, part of Europe is going secular and part of Europe is sort of staying staunchly Catholic. And it's like, how are you going to deliver that message through art? It's a real kind of movement in a way and and pinnacle time. It's so exciting for her because, I mean, in 1963, she was commissioned to create a banner for the Vatican Pavilion at the 1964 World's Fair in New York City, which is just this sort of giant screen. I mean, tell us, what was she making at this time? Well, this was, I think, a very great honor. And when she received that commission, she went to her sisters and said, hey, what do we want to say here? Yeah. And she's capturing that in the Beatitudes banner, which was about 40 feet long. Wow. And what's fascinating about that World's Fair, that was the first time the Vatican had put on loan Michelangelo's Pieta sculpture. And so you would have had to pass by the Beatitudes banner to see the sculpture. And so this idea of old and new and new ways of looking and that there's many different ways to approach this. I love that they were, you know, perhaps even visually in conversation together, even briefly. 
Yeah, I love that. And also it sort of speaks about, you know, secular versus religious art in the sense that you can appreciate this piece of art as art, or you can, like you say, see the sort of element of spirituality. You can say the same thing about Michelangelo's Pieta. I mean, I'm not religious, so I sort of very much see the kind of artistic side of things. But I kind of love that her work is for a secular community as well. It's completely universal in the same way that Michelangelo's Pieta is because it's such a sort of stunning piece of marble sculpture. Oh, exactly. And that's just, you know, one example, I think, as, you know, 1965 is really a turning point for her work becoming more directly political. And then, you know, a little bit of a shift happens of how can I use this tool and the platform? Because she is rising to fame very quickly. She was a household name, especially in LA. And what is it that she wants to say with her work? And I think We also see a lot of people come into her life that I do think were of influence, such as Daniel Bear again and many others. Yeah, she really kind of captures the anti-war messaging, a bit like people like Kusama and Yoko Ono were doing on the east coast of America at the time. You know, her fantastic poster, Stop the Bombing. It's this sort of beautiful red and blue and white silkscreen, but it's so personable. You really get a sense of her pacifist nature as well. Right. And I think that speaks a lot to her process. You know, she's directly pulling from headlines and the way that she's manipulating the type, you know, she would rip it from the headlines. She'd crumple it up, you know, where you see letters fold over or cascade into the print. She was physically doing that and then taking a photograph of that, then projecting it into her screens. And so Again, when we have visitors, (laughs) we remind them that when they are quite young, Photoshop did not exist. Um, This is all very specifically done. And that's part of the message. You know, she is pulling directly from mass media and incorporating them into her work. Another great example of that would be the 1965 My People, in which she takes the LA Times cover, which includes the Watts uprising, and there's hateful, horrible language, and she turns it on its side, and then includes part of an excerpt of a sermon from a priest that had been marching in Selma at the time. It was almost as if she's reporting the news in the late 60s through her art and exposing her students to this as well, of what was happening in the world. And also kind of like challenging the media as well. I mean, she was just so pioneering. I mean, it's kind of amazing that she was around in the 50s and 60s because, you know, she feels so current. And I think that's why her work speaks volumes to now. But I mean, you know, she was being recognized so much at this time. People like Alfred Hitchcock would visit her. The Eve, the Immaculate Heart was becoming this kind of sensation in a way at this point. Certainly. I think we definitely could not have a conversation about her work without bringing in Ray and Charles Eames, who she cites as her greatest educator to Charles Eames. Wow. Yeah, they were on campus quite a bit. We have a lovely archive of photos and they had a speaking series called the Great Men Series, which they even acknowledged in their later years. We probably would have named that something differently. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But a hotbed of forward thinking around design that art can be lived in, it can be worn, it is all around us, you can eat it, you can feel it, you can play with it, this idea that it can take many shapes and many forms. And you see that in the Great Men series, when you look at some of the people that were there and speaking, such as Buckminster Fuller, 
you know, I think about his design and, and his approach and how those thoughts were not singular. They seep into the curriculum and the environment that was Immaculate Heart College at that time and the conversations that were fostered in those classrooms around community and space. Totally, because I mean, at this point as well, she's not only the superstar, but she is also a teacher. I and mean, her teaching methods were also getting acclaim. I mean, this liberal Catholic college became an experimental mecca in a way. I mean, am I right in thinking that Sister Carita would hold two-hour looking sessions and their assignments revolved around large quantities of production, for example, to do a hundred drawings by the next day. And, and it's like this idea of like encouraging students to look beyond the classroom as well. Oh, certainly. The viewfinder lessons, you know, that's a practice that we have. Yeah, tell us about this. <laughs> it's this idea of looking at something until it almost loses its meaning of what you've been taught and conditioned to think of this object as. And it's very meditative after you reach the first hour of looking and, and looking again. But I think that there's certainly a community and social justice element to the practice of a viewfinder of the world can be very heavy at times. It can be really hard to take in everything, right? It's hard to watch the news sometimes and your heart gets pulled in so many directions. But how can you create change in the square foot that you're standing in? And so the viewfinder is very much also this practice of if I can just focus on this very small square <laughs> that I'm looking through and start reapproaching the way that I look at things and are present and, and just the act of being present, that can better inform even for them their creative practice. And so they would be sent out in Hollywood to look with their viewfinders. And then, yes, they were given some pretty notorious assignments that were, you know, you could hear the groans of students going, <laughs> how am I going to do this by tomorrow? I love it. But they always did. And it was part of the thought that if you can learn to look to start, then you can do this next thing. And yeah. that it's okay to have amateur feelings about something very serious. Like it's okay to get things wrong as you're yeah. experimenting and for artists to let go of some of that and for her students to let go of like, it's my hand that I have to draw has to look this way because I've always been taught that I have to look this way. And so at some point you see these hundred drawings and they become something original. So I think that was part of her practice, but I also know she was pretty stern teacher. <laughs> <laughs> I love this. I mean, you very kindly gave me a poster of her rules last year with these amazing about 10 rules. I mean, everyone should have a look at this and put up on their wall, especially artists listening, because I mean, it's just amazing in terms of like, you know, rule number one is find a place you trust and then try trusting it for a while. Rule four, consider everything an experiment. Rule seven, the only rule is to work. If you work, it will lead to something. It's the people who do all the work all the time who eventually catch on to things. I mean, they're just kind of really simple life lessons, but they sort of almost transcend art in a way, and you can apply them to your life. And I think that's what she's so brilliant at. She's so brilliant at taking things out of context, or like you say, you know, look at something for so long and then it kind of becomes something else and it becomes something original. Oh, certainly. And the 10 rules, I think that's such a great example of some of her social practice because 
she puts out to her students this larger question, and then she curates the 10 rules from their responses. And then that was later created into the poster by David Meckelberg. But prior to that, it was laid out by one of her students, Barbara Lost. And so this idea that it's in communication with her students as an educator, that her students do not come into the space empty. They have lived experiences that she is there as educator to also receive from them. And I love that notion. And I also very much love the helpful hints at the very bottom. And the very end, it says there will be new rules next week. So here are these list of rules that are kind of hard and fast and seem, you know, they're rules, right? They're boundaries uh, that have been set. But then at the very end, it's like, well, you know, remain flexible. <laughs> we might change the yeah, it's all good. It's all good. <laughs> it's all good. Like, you know, we do the best we can. And that, that really was the motto for the art department. We have no art. So it's this idea that we're all creatives. We're all artists. We all have artistic souls as humans. And so she invites a lot of that out of her students. And we're lucky enough as the center to not only be in conversation with some of her students, but also we're still learning from them. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's so cool. I love that. But I also love that they also passed down what she taught probably to their students as well. I mean, it's very much like Augusta Savage or someone, you know, who taught the likes of Wednesday Knight and Jacob Lawrence. And, and, you know, it's about like people's legacy like lives on in those that they teach, which I think is extraordinary. But I mean, you know, this is a really political time. I mean, 1968, so much happens in America. You know, the assassinations of Martin Luther King, but also John Kennedy. And, you know, she's obviously rising and rising and rising. In 1969, she's on the cover of Newsweek. I mean, what kind of happens at this time, the kind of turning point of 1970? Well, biographically, I think speaking for Karita, it's a tough time. She's exhausted. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's the other thing that I have learned as an art historian who's did not grow up in the Catholic faith of learning so much of her history and the circumstances in which she was working under, you know, her time really was not her own as much as she was everywhere. She also very much needed a rest. (laughs) And so she ultimately, well, she, she went on sabbatical and then sought dispensation from her vows. And I think part of that was the sheer exhaustion of being everywhere at once and um, she does her, much of her sabbatical and ultimately um, and goes out to Cape Cod, then lived in Boston for the rest of her life after that. So she is in very much her own way responding to not only what was happening there at home with her community and the order, but also what was happening in the larger world because after she seeks dispensation from her vows, she creates three three very large series of works that she's able to do in such a high production because she starts working with the house that's run by Harry Hambly on the West Coast. They do make a very pointed political turn too, especially with Heroes and Sheroes. She includes Martin Luther King Jr. And she addresses the Kennedy assassinations And she's able to take on commissions that I don't think she would have otherwise been able to do while she was part of the order. What was the church's perception of her success as well? 
I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall <laughs> for much of the 60s out of her studio. Especially, you know, I think at one point they wanted to have priests oversee the making of her work in her studio. Wow. So I can't say what the larger perception in any certainty was, but I think she had a lot of supporters as well. And I think that's part of Catholic history. I don't know if I can particularly speak to as not quite an expert in the religious left and in the 60s, but it's certainly an undercurrent of what was happening outside of just Corita and the work that she was making. Yeah, of course. But I mean, in the 1970s, I mean, she does go on to sort of reinvent her career again. I mean, I'm sure many people in America will recognize the Boston Gas logo, which is actually the logo that she designed. Yes. Oh, the rainbow swash, which is so beloved. It just had its 50th anniversary in 2021. And they actually just repainted it this last year. So I don't think it's going anywhere anytime soon. It is so beloved by the community it sits in. And what's so special to hear from those that live in the Dorchester and Boston area is this sentiment of, I always know I'm home or almost home when I see the rainbow swash. And so it was a commission she had done with Boston gas and there was supposed to be a second tank too, with another design as well. But it was this idea of a beacon of hope. And so, especially from the seventies to her passing 86, she takes on some of the biggest commissions like the gas tank. And then the very smallest, which is the USPS postal stamp with love on it. Yeah, I love this. So in 1985, she was asked to design a postage stamp, which sold more than 700 million copies. And I love this because just keeping in the sort of spirit of Carita, they're just rainbows and they say love on them. And USA 22, there's something so pure about her work as well. You know, it is this expression of joy and love. And in a way, it's a different message of spirituality. It doesn't necessarily have to be religious. It's the fact that let's take the best part of what she had, which was this idea of love and community and spread that in the world. Oh, absolutely. The story that surrounds the stamp in particular is such a good example of Corita in her later years for many reasons, because many of her serographs are informed by her watercolors, which I know people are still discovering that she had this very robust watercolor practice and they're so beautiful. And many of them are incorporated into her serographs. And So she receives the commission and she had envisioned a very different type of opening ceremony and celebration of the stamp. And the U.S. Postal Service chooses to debut it on the love boat, like a very Hollywood thing to do. And she refused to go because that was not the type of love she meant. She had visioned, you know, a celebration at the UN or something along those lines. And again, kind of goes back to humanitarian love for her. And what I think is remarkable because she ultimately succumbs to cancer in 1986. One of the last prints that she does is very similar to the stamp with this kind of rainbow swash of color. And it says, love is hard work as this reminder that we have to offer each other grace in our love to make mistakes and to learn from each other. And so that for me is maybe another favorite as one of her final works is just this reminder that we have to keep showing up for one another. I love that. I love that. Just a sort of final message. Love is hard work. Which 
is definitely a good reminder, I think, right now as we gather, especially here in the U.S. where it feels very polarizing right now, that we just have to keep making community. And what does that look like if we center hope and joy and, and love and these causes in collective practice? And so uh, I think of that work often, too. Yeah. What do you think she's taught you? So much. As you can tell, I'm... <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. She's very easy to love, like I said, but I love the state of discovery that she has brought into my life. Even with all the certitude we may have in our very kind of historical point of view, it's like, oh no, but things can be so different too. So we have to keep learning and learning from each other. And so going back to the new rules next week, we have to remain flexible. Absolutely. Nellie Scott, thank you so much for this amazing conversation about Sister Carita. I urge everyone to go and visit the Carita Art Centre if they can, if they're in Los Angeles, because it is absolutely amazing. And where can people find you when you take your Carita Mobile as well out, which is the best van ever? Yeah. <laughs> you know, a woman that's a volunteer for us calls it the loaf of hope because oh. we have the Wonder Bread artwork on the side of it. So it looks like a little little bread trailer. The work that we do, we fall into many different sectors, I suppose, not only as an artist estate and a collection that we want to make as available as possible in her ethos of digitizing things so that people near and far, you don't have to come to Hollywood to visit us. Hopefully through our website, you'll be able to learn more here soon. But also, how can we take this incredible gift she's left us and keep lifting the voices of artists working now and artist educators and hiring artist educators to do arts education in the community. And so that's where our little trailer comes into play. I'll hitch it up and take it anywhere that somebody would want us. So it's a real delight. And you take art supplies. Art supplies. Yes. So we just had Karita Day, which is like fun day. It's her birthday, November 20th, and the city of Los Angeles and the county of Los Angeles named it Creta Day in 2019. And so we view that day as a day in service and her legacy. So folks that bought a ticket to, to come to our Carita Day this last November were quickly put to work to build over 500 art kits that were at this very moment distributing across Los Angeles filled with curriculum and supplies, but also some food and snacks and healthy treats. Thanks to many of our friends and partners. Amazing. Nellie Scott, thank you so much. But as does the Great Women Artists podcast, we do always ask our guests, if you could ask or say anything to Sister Carita, what would it be? I, yeah, I would just say thank you. I'm very thankful that she is in our lives and that for whatever powers that be that allow us to be her champions. So I thank you. Oh, amazing. Nellie Scott, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you, Katie. Thank you all so much for listening to the final episode of this series of the Great Women Artists podcast with the brilliant Nellie Scott on Sister Mary Carita. I am just in awe at Carita's vision to just create incredible community and her legacy lives on in Los Angeles and beyond. As always, this episode was sound edited by the brilliant Nada Smanelej and research assistant was Viva Ruji. Thank you all so much for listening to this series of the Great Women Artists podcast and we'll see you in the new year for season nine.